All right, Acts chapter 9. I, uh, I love this section of Scripture. I love to see, I love to see people getting saved. Uh, I, think there's, there's, uh, I don't think there's anything quite as exciting in this side of heaven as when you see the pennies dropped in someone's mind or when somebody comes to a place where they are broken by the Lord or they're just God gets their attention and you know the Holy Spirit's done something in their life to save them. And, and I love reading uh, Saul's story specifically. Uh, because it, it reminds me a little bit of me. I don't think it was nearly as bad as Saul was. He's definitely the chief of sinners. I'm not as bad as he was. <laughs> but just that idea of that Saul was not looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for Saul and how he hunted him down. And what I want to do is we're going to look at the first uh, 19 verses of chapter 9, and we're going to talk about just how Jesus saved Saul. And I think there's three really great pictures in here that we're going to see that really apply to not just our understanding of how God's chased us down, but also what God wants to do with people. Because I think it's really important, if we're going to be at all effective in reaching people and, and representing Jesus to people, we have to understand what, what it means for Him to save somebody, what's actually happening when God gets a hold of someone's life. So why don't we pray again, and then we'll look at the first 19 verses of Acts chapter 9. Father, we do ask again that you would pour out your spirit. We are so thankful for a time of worshiping together. And we just pray that as we get into your word now, uh, that Lord, you would really, Lord, you would really grip our hearts. You would build our faith. Lord, that we would desire to, to go out with the gospel. Knowing, Lord, that, that, that you are still in the business of pursuing people of getting their attention, and of saving them, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would help our hearts to be open to what you have for us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember from back in chapter 8, uh, where we saw Saul last, in the beginning of chapter 8, was where Saul was holding the clothes of those, the, the coats, you might say, of those who were stoning Stephen to death. He was consenting with their death. Or consenting with Stephen's death. And so it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, we, we, we see in this picture that Saul's in this place where he is really zealous to see people who follow the way, that is, Christians. He's really zealous to see them put aside. He's really jealous to see them arrested, murdered, uh, put in jail. He just wants to see this idea, this news about this supposed Messiah in his mind. He wants to see it stopped. And, and Paul says very clearly in his own testimony that basically he thought he was in a place where he was really pleasing to God in this. Saul really felt like he was at his best before God in pursuing Christians. When he gives kind of his own testimony, talking about the need for us as believers, followers of Jesus, to be humble, he says, if anyone else may have confidence in the flesh, that is, confidence in our own works or abilities, I more so. Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, 
concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul talks about even in his own testimony that when he was doing these things that we see described in Acts chapter 9, he thought he was doing God a favor. He felt like he was rightly representing the God God of the Bible, that he was doing exactly what God would have him do by persecuting these Christians. And to be honest, it sounds very similar to a lot of what we see happening in the news, unfortunately, on a daily basis with Muslim extremists. They feel like they're doing what God would have them do by persecuting Christians, by killing other people. And this is what Saul thought. He assumed he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. So as he's doing this, as he, he actually goes from Jerusalem, he gets the high priest's permission to go into the synagogues that are in Damascus. Uh, you know, So he's traveling like a six-day journey to get to uh, Damascus in Syria. And he needs this, this letter to show that he does have authority to arrest these people. And it's interesting, too, that there would be many believers all the way. This is so far away from Jerusalem. There would be this many believers. It shows how extensive people were running away from the persecution. But he gets the letters, and it says, in verse 3, As he journeyed, uh, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, so he said, well, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I love this because, um, one, it's a great, it's a, Paul asked the, the first question that we should all ask. The, the most important question we can ask is, who are you, Lord? Okay, you, Jesus, this Jesus who people follow as Messiah, who are you? Interesting, when he says Lord, he doesn't mean it in, in the way we talk about in the sense of the, the all-powerful one that we should follow. He's just kind of being polite and respectful. But he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He asks, why are you persecuting me? Jesus asks him this. And we're reminded also uh, as well as, of, of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25. Remember when Jesus said, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. If you've not done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've not done it unto me. That Jesus uh, basically is confronting Paul um, about this reality. That look, this is, you think you're doing this to these people that are off base, but it's me, the resurrected Jesus, that you're actually persecuting. This is kind of a side note, but this should actually bring us some comfort. That when we are persecuted or marginalized, or we feel like, man, we're being treated badly. One, we know that they treated Jesus that way first. And two, Jesus takes it personally. It, it concerns him. He doesn't want to see his kids treated badly. It, it brings me comfort. That God's not just on his throne kind of going, oh, looks pretty tough down there. Well, you're going to go to heaven someday, so oh well. No, he's concerned for us. He cares. He says, that's happening to me. He feels all that we're going through. And he says, Jesus says to Saul, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You guys know what a goad is, yeah? It's a stick, a long wooden stick with a pointy little metal piece. And when those who would be plowing fields would have like a, a yoke of oxen in front of them. The way they'd keep the oxen plowing a straight line was they would poke it in the back here in the, kind of the hamstrings of the ox and kind of poke it to make sure it would kind of keep going in a certain direction. And if the ox was particularly stubborn, it would kind of kick against the goat, like, knock it off, you know. 
But of course, when it would do that, because the goad was kind of right near, kind of just holding there near the back of his leg, it would kind of dig in deeper. But it was this, it's this picture, Jesus has given this picture of, look, I've been goading you for a while, and it's been painful for you, hasn't it? In fact, you actually kind of sense a compassion that Jesus is having. He's saying, it is, it's hard for you, isn't it? This, this hurts, doesn't it? And so what you have is a situation where Jesus has been pursuing Paul for a long time. Yeah, he's confronted him here, but he's been pursuing him for a long time. And it's a reminder of us that what we see on the surface isn't always what's happening under the surface. Jesus said that when he would send the Holy Spirit, this is what would happen. He said and when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world. Speaking of unbelievers, he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, God the Spirit is, is poking at people's hearts long before we see the confrontation come to a head. And this is why we pray for our services. This is why we pray on Sunday morning. This is why we pray on Friday morning. This is why we pray during the week. We're praying, God, when people come, would you do this work? Not expecting that it has to be on that day, but expecting that God's going to bring those who he's already goading. (laughs) That God's already goading people. Now, this is important because, again, we're seeing Jesus is pursuing Saul when Saul really wants nothing to do with him. So it says in verse 6, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Another good question. Okay, Lord, who are you and what do you want me to do? It's funny because the way we seem to do church nowadays, often it's kind of like people seem to ask, Okay, so what's God going to do for me? But when God confronts a person, when, when the Spirit of God has been goading somebody and he finally gets someone's attention, when God gets their attention, they know what's on their heart. Who is this God and what does he want from me? I have to say, this was exactly my experience. Four days before I actually received Christ as my Savior, and I'm lying in bed and crying out to God, what the blankety blank do you want from me? Because I'm being goaded for months by God. That when finally I recognized that that goading was from God and I had a revelation, don't know else to call it, but a revelation that I was actually a sinner and responsible to this God for my sin, my first prayer was, I need to know you and do whatever you say. And I hadn't known this, I didn't know anything about this stuff. But when the Spirit of God is goading somebody, He's wanting them to, the Spirit always goads people towards Jesus. And he goads people to know that Jesus is Lord. He's who we should follow. He's who we need to listen to. He's who is the one who loves us. And so the Spirit's doing this thing in Saul's heart. And Jesus is saying, you know, it's hard for you to kick against these goads, isn't it? And so he says, what do you want me to do? And so he says, then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And it says, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. In other words, he was blinded. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, notice as well, that even though Saul is receiving this great grace from Jesus, it doesn't mean instant happiness. (laughs) He is, here he is, God's, you know, Jesus is graciously confronting Saul. 
And what's the first thing he experiences? He's scared to death. He's trembling. He's anxious. He's physically blind, and he doesn't get to eat or drink for three days. Oh, happy day. Now, it's going to lead to his happiness, obviously, but it's not instant happiness. Now, this is the thing that we tend to sort of brush over sometimes. It's important to recognize that Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. We're not talking about, went for a run, I want a drink of water. Or, hey, I had a great workout, I could go for a protein shake. We're talking about, I am dying of hunger. I can't talk because my tongue is swollen with thirst. You go three days and three nights without drink or food of any kind, and you see how you feel. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And, and we, we forget that this is part of grace. In fact, this is the first picture I think we see when we talk, we're talking about Jesus saving Saul, and that is we see grace for the sinner. This is what God brings. God brings grace to the humble, grace to the sinner. And part of that grace is making them hungry. I often pray for my family and my friends who don't know Jesus. I'm often praying for them saying, Lord, increase the vanity of their life. Let, it, let them feel even more empty than they feel now about where their life is. Not because I'm a sadist. <laughs> it's because I want them to know how much they need grace. This is what Jesus is doing to Paul graciously. He's wanting to bring him compassionately to the end of himself. So we see grace for the sinner. Then it says in verse 10, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And he said to, the, and, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, super clear, isn't it? Jesus tells Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to touch, lay hands on Saul of Tarsus. Now, he knows exactly who Saul of Tarsus is. But it's got to be really clear here that this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is wanting Ananias to go serve Saul. That's what he wants to do. So Ananias says in verse 13, Ananias said, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. Now, you know, this is pretty serious because Saul hasn't even got to Damascus yet, or at least he hadn't got to Damascus with the letters yet. Yet everybody knew this is going to happen. It's going to come down. Here it comes, man. Persecutions are coming. Saul's coming here now. He's got the letters. But what happens? Persecution's about to take place. And what does Jesus do? Hey, go serve the guy who came to persecute you. I'm doing something in his heart. I love this because this brings us to sort of the second picture I think we see in Jesus saving Saul. We don't just see grace for the sinners. We see love for an enemy. There's no doubt that Ananias saw Saul as an enemy. Now, some people want to sort of, I guess, sugarcoat how, what Christian love is about. Hey, we're Christians. We love everybody. We don't have any enemies. What? 
That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not how Ananias is thinking. And I think it's important to recognize, too, that when the Bible says Ananias was a certain disciple, we know nothing about Ananias except this. And all it tells us is he's a follower of Jesus. He's just an ordinary guy. Now, there are a few Bible commentators who want to say he must have been a leader of the church. Why? Why didn't it say he was a leader in the church? He was just an ordinary guy that just says, look, you know that guy that wants to kill everybody? He's praying. So could you go serve him? Uh, isn't he our enemy, Lord? He's our enemy. We can't go serve our enemies. How can we love our enemies? But isn't exactly what Jesus called us to do, to love our enemies. And so what happens is after Ananias you know, says this, the Lord says to him in verse 15, the Lord said to him, go... For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much things he must suffer for my name's sake. I kind of picture Ananias at this point going, okay, he's going to suffer. Well, I guess I'll go over there. But there's something here too, because in Jesus loving his enemy, in Jesus saving Saul, it's really, clear, it's really important that we understand that he's not saying that Saul has to suffer because of all how bad he's been. That's not the point here. In fact, Paul would say later on in Colossians 1.24, he would write this. He said, Now I rejoice now in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So it's a very difficult verse for a lot of people because they think, is, is Paul saying that Jesus' uh, suffering on the cross wasn't enough? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying it wasn't enough to atone for sins. Basically what he's saying is, Paul's saying to the Colossians, look, I'm so glad I suffered because it gained me the credibility to share with you the gospel. Do you see what I'm saying? And so Saul, what Jesus is saying about Saul here is not, oh, he's going to have to suffer because he's been a bad boy. But he's saying, look, he's going to have to suffer because I'm going to use him in such radical ways. In fact, remember, we'll see this in the future months when we go through 2 Corinthians where Saul talks about at the end of 2 Corinthians that God had allowed a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. There was some sort of suffering. I think it was a physical suffering personally, but some sort of suffering that he was goaded with by the enemy. But why? So God could say, look, I don't want you to be exalted because I've revealed to you truth that no, that no one else has seen, and I've used you in ways that m many people have not been used, so I want you to be humble by this so that the gospel gets more credibility. The point is this is love for the enemy, that Jesus would love his enemies so much for that he turns them into friends and beloved co-workers. <laughs> See, this is the thing. We, we don't need to be afraid to talk about what the Scripture clearly says, which is that if somebody's not in Christ, they're at enmity with God. They're God's enemies. That's what the Bible teaches. We don't need to be afraid of that. You know why we don't need to be afraid of that? You know, we don't have to worry about that not being sounding very nice or politically correct. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus is in the business of taking his enemies and turning them into friends. That's what we are offering to people with the gospel. Hey, look, you are an enemy of God. You don't want to... Uh, he reigns from on high and you don't want to submit to him. But here's the good news. Jesus died to make you his friend, to adopt you into his family. He loves his enemies. Oh, you're an enemy. Don't, don't, don't doubt him. And the truth is... He will crush his enemies under his feet for, if, if those don't repent. But the good news is, 
He sent Christ so that you could repent, so you could turn back to God, so you could be forgiven. He loves his enemies. And so Adonis went on his way, and he enters the house, and he lays his hands on him, and he says, Brother Saul. Let me ask you a really serious question. If there was someone who was arrested in Norwich for plotting a potential terrorist attack on our church, and there's not enough evidence to convict him, he gets set free, but someone sees him on the street and invites him to our church, or maybe it's just even better. Let's say, let's say a more realistic scenario. Will preaches to him on the street. <laughs> and he gets radically saved. It's a, it's a devil bug. Just. <laughs> Shoe fly. And so he gets radically saved, and then he comes into the church. And he's, he's a new believer, so he's still dressed fully like a Muslim. Would you be able to go up to him and say, Brother Muhammad? Because that's what's happening here. That Saul is, is this guy who is persecuting Christians, who wanted to see them dead, and Jesus sends Ananias, and Ananias actually goes and lays hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as, as you came, he sent me that, notice, you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he's, he's, what he's doing here is he's saying, listen, God's going to move in your life right now powerfully. You thought you were God's friend. You were God's enemy. You thought you were doing something uh, glorious and that would made you righteous, but you were a sinner. But God showed grace to you as a sinner. God loves you as an enemy. And I want to show you now through the power of God that you belong to Jesus. You're now part of his family. And this is important because here, this, this move of God here, this Paul being filled, or Saul being filled with the Holy Spirit, is a display of God's power to confirm that Saul is identified as one belonging to Jesus. That's why he's doing it. And so he does this in verse 18, it says, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and received his sight at once, and he arose and he was baptized. Now, I love this too, because here God... By his power, by the work of his spirit, has has broken Saul, and now is bringing Saul to baptism. So God the Spirit is bringing him from brokenness to baptism, and this is again something we need to understand about how God works. Okay, Isaiah, uh, Hosea the prophet says to the Israelites in Hosea chapter six. He says, "Come now, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn, but He will heal. He has stricken." but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Now, in Hosea's context, God's talking about chasing his people, but I've seen the same thing happen with unbelievers, that God, he brings hardship. Why? To get their attention. 
to bring them to Himself. He allows them to be stricken. He allows them to be torn. Why? Because He wants to see them healed, whole, saved, His. That's what He wants to do. That's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to accept. Especially nowadays. We live in a day and age where, you know, I'm generalizing here, but often parents don't discipline their kids. They don't. I'm not just talking about smacking. They don't do anything. They never want to make the little guys feel any lowest self-esteem. Instead of just making sure they know, this is bogus. You can't be this way. Why do we do that with our children? Why does God do it with us? So that we can have a better relationship in the future. I've told so many parents over the years, they say, oh, I just, I just, I'm such good friends with my 10-year-old. And I don't want to ruin that friendship. I said, you're going to ruin that friendship for the future. Be a parent now so you can be a friend in years to come. This is what God does. God does as a good father. He does what he needs to get his kids' attention. This is what God is doing for Saul, his chosen vessel. He's confronting him. He's breaking him down so that he can then what? Heal him. He blinded him so he could heal him. Think about that. He was blinded by that light and he was healed by the same God who blinded him with the light healed him from the blindness. Why? So he could see him. So he could know him. And it says, and so when he had received food, he was strengthened and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now we'll see more about Saul in the future. But this is again part of Saul's own testimony about what God did with him. Saul writes this in 1 Timothy. He says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and with love which are in Christ Jesus. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I've always been fascinated by the fact that Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Specifically because we see this pattern in Paul's life where uh, there is a point in, in 1 Corinthians where he says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. And then I think it's in Ephesians where he says, I'm not worthy to be numbered among the saints. And then here he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. And it seemed that Paul, as he kind of progressed with God, he got a lower sense of, of who he was. But you also still think, come on, you're the chief of sinners? Isn't that almost arrogant? Like you're bragging like I was the worst, you know? But I think this is why Paul says this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Because what did Paul think about himself when he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent man? He thought he was righteous. He assumed he was righteous. Now, I'm bringing that part out because the section ends with him just spending time with the disciples at Damascus. And I'll tell you what, talk about being humbled. Oh, how are you? How are the kids? Oh, good. I'm so glad I didn't kill you. I'm really, really glad that God saved me before I got a chance to kill you. It's really nice. You're such nice people. Your falafels are the best. Thank you so much. For, I mean, can you imagine how humbled he was by that, thinking, how could I think I was better than these people? And there's something about hanging out with the saints that makes you realize what a group of messed up people we are, but also, man, I, be- I belong right here. I'm just as messed up. And we're humbled by it. And he says this, 
However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering, notice, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, Paul says, the way God saved me, the way Jesus saved me in giving grace to the sinner, in giving love to an enemy, and showing power for a purpose, that's what he wants to do with everybody. That's what he wants to do with all those who will come to him. Great story. Great part of church history. May God use it to motivate us to share Him with others.